Let's ask God to help us with his word. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, week by week we can come and hear your word, the word of the living God who knows all and who rules all. We pray that you would help me to speak it truthfully and clearly and that you would give us understanding of this word, that we would know what this word means for us as followers of Jesus. We thank you for all your word and for your promise that all your word will be profitable to us. And we look for that good work in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, good laws need good administration and enforcement if they are to be of any benefit to society. Topical example, workplace regulations like those that government the pay, govern the payment or safety of workers. Well, they're only helpful in shaping a just and fair society if they're administered well and the judgments of the regulator enforced. Otherwise, workers miss out on what is their due or they don't come home. Traffic rules that allow us to travel safely only achieve that goal if they're enforced. How often, when you've been watching that tailgater fill your mirror or been terrified by that person chopping and changing lanes at high speed, have you longed to see that blue flashing light? Enforcement. In the covenant the Lord has entered into with Israel at Mount Sinai, the covenant the Lord is renewing now with Israel through Moses on the east bank of the Jordan before they go in and take possession of the land of promise, the Lord has given his people good laws, laws that if kept would make them the envy of the surrounding nations, that would make those nations say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What great nation is there? that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. But how are these laws to be enforced amongst the people of Israel when they're living in the land, when they're scattered over Palestine in villages and towns far away from the central sanctuary and when Moses is no longer with them? Who will be responsible for maintaining the requirements of the covenant, ensuring the requirements of the covenant are kept in day-to-day -day Israelite life so that the people live as they are, the Lord's people, the people whom the Lord has made his own through his rescue of them from Egypt in faithfulness to his promises made to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Who will be responsible in that new circumstance, to make sure that the Lord's rule through his word, his Torah, is maintained amongst his people. This is not just a question of legal administration. It is a question of identity. For Israel has its identity as the people of God from their relationship with the Lord, their God. It's this identity that is their security and hope. It's this identity that is expressed only in conforming their lives individually and collectively to the covenant. So who will be responsible for maintaining their distinctive identity as the Lord's people generation after generation? And as soon as you see that identity is at stake in conforming their life to the covenant, 
you see that believers in Jesus have a lot to learn from Deuteronomy 16 and 17. You see, we have our Christian identity from our relationship with Jesus, a relationship brought about by believing the gospel the apostles preach and confessing Jesus as Lord. And that identity is the source of our security and hope. With the departure of the apostles, Jesus' messengers, who was to be responsible for maintaining Christian identity, the identity of believers as the people of the Lord Jesus? Who's to be responsible for making sure that the Lord Jesus' rule through his word, his gospel word, is maintained amongst his people generation after generation? Oh, and if you're not yet a believer and attempted to think that this has nothing to do to, with you, keep listening. Being able to hear and knowing how to respond to the gospel of Jesus is life. And Deuteronomy 16 and 17 is about making sure that Jesus' gospel word can be heard and response to it seen in the world so that you have an opportunity to wonder at what great God has given us such a wonderful word as this gospel word. So let's start where this section starts. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, you shall not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice, you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This instruction is not addressed only to those who will be appointed judges. No, this is addressed to the whole people and to each Israelite individually. It's you, singular. And so, in a sense, our question's already answered. Who will be responsible? Well, each Israelite individually and every Israelite collectively. Each Israelite is responsible for ensuring that the Lord's rule through his word, his Torah, is maintained amongst his people. Each Israelite is responsible for maintaining their distinctive identity as the Lord's people, generation after generation. How? Well, verses 18 to 20 outline the two elements that are involved in Israel discharging this responsibility. The first element, verses 18 to 19, commands the establishing of a system of courts, as it were, judges and judicial officers in every town who will operate according to God's law. And then we'll see in verses 2 to 13 of chapter 17 illustrations of how that system will work. But the second element is seen in verse 20, and that addresses the heart of every Israelite, the disposition, the commitment that's to be expressed in the system that's established by God's command. So, firstly, there is to be a system of local judges in every town. Righteous judgment is to be accessible to all. And these judges are to be appointed by the people. Now, we're not told anything of their qualifications. Moses already said a little about that in chapter 1. What's stressed here is how they're to exercise their role. In their activity, they are to judge with righteous judgment. That is, their judgments are to be informed by and consistent with 
God's character and instruction, his laws given in the covenant. Righteousness is being faithful to the covenant, abiding by its instruction, doing what God commands. The Lord is righteous. He keeps the covenant, doing all that he's committed himself to in entering into this relationship with his people. And his people are to be righteous as he is. That is, they are to do all that they have committed themselves to do when they entered into the covenant. That is, they committed themselves then to do everything that the Lord commands and their righteousness is living by that commitment. Righteous judgment will mean that they will not do three things in judgment. They'll not pervert, twist, justice. They won't acquit the guilty or punish the innocent or use the law to oppress those the law should defend. They'll not show partiality, that is, show favouritism to some for any reason, whether they like the look of them or they're in the club or they're wealthy or poor or their family. All are to be treated alike. And they will not accept bribes, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. A bribe makes the wise act foolishly, that is, out of line with reality, with the facts. And a bribe undermines the cause of those who have lived in conformity to God's will. And so where bribery takes hold, people are discouraged from living according to righteousness, living according to God's word. To not twist justice, to not show favouritism, to not accept to not accept bribes are obligations on every Israelite and actually on every believer because that standard of justice expresses the Lord's character. And all are to embrace these standards of justice community-wide. And they're to do that because every Israelite is to pursue, follow verse 20, justice and only justice. The word translated as justice is the word that's translated elsewhere as righteousness. Verse 20 gives the bigger principle that's to guide the action of every Israelite that's to be their fundamental commitment. It addresses their heart, addresses our heart, and it calls on them and it calls on the people of God to be wholly committed in every activity to righteousness to living in conformity in all things, not just judging to the standards of the covenant, to living in all things as the people of the righteous God. It's this commitment that's to guide the appointment of judges, guide the behaviour of those appointed, guide the system in all its operations. And it's this commitment that will preserve them as the Lord's people, living in his presence in his land. Moses now gives instruction that will protect this foundational commitment to righteousness, to living in all things as the people in covenant relationship to the Lord, their saving God. In these examples, we'll also learn more about how their system of justice was to operate, as the people are taught how to deal with behaviour that is the very opposite of righteousness, behaviour that is a repudiation of the rule of the Lord and his covenant. So first, Moses tells them that they must reject any attempt to dilute wholehearted commitment to the Lord and his standards. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make, and you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. An Asherah, which could be a tree or pole, 
represented Asherah, who was the Canaanite female fertility goddess. And a pillar, which previously had been accepted as a kind of memorial, was now wholly associated with Baal, the male Canaanite god of fertility, and so that was also forbidden. You see, Israelites were not to join the worship of the Canaanite gods to the worship of the Lord. That mixing of the elements of paganism with the worship of the Lord is called syncretism. In particular, the gods were understood to oversee legal proceedings, and so Israelites were not to invoke any other god as their witness or authority or to act by the standards of any other god. The Lord alone was to be witness and his standards alone were to prevail in Israel, righteousness and only righteousness. And Moses reminds them in verse 1 that the Lord in worship accepts nothing less than the best, than the whole. And so there's to be no indifference, nothing less than wholehearted conformity to his commands where Israel is administering justice. Having called for wholehearted commitment to the Lord, in 17.2-13, Moses gives two examples of the judicial process at work dealing with the most serious cases, examples of behaviour that strike at the heart of the Lord's rule of his people, behaviour that repudiates his rule, rejects righteousness. If there's found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. Having dealt back in chapter 13 with those who were seeking to entice Israel to worship other gods, here Moses deals with the case of an Israelite man or woman who is worshipping another god. Now this is not viewed as a private personal matter. It's viewed with the utmost seriousness as worthy of death for it is a repudiation of the covenant with the Lord of the very foundation of righteousness, the very foundation of the operation of justice in Israel. To go and worship another god is, is to be like someone who wants to live in Australia but operate by rejecting the Australian constitution and therefore the authority of the Australian courts. For an Israelite to go and worship other gods is rebellion against the state itself, for the Lord is king. And because it's so serious, it must, verse 4, be investigated carefully. There's no room for laziness or operating on rumour or hearsay. And there must be adequate testimony to establish the charge, verse 6. One person might be operating out of malice, making a false charge, or perhaps they've misunderstood the facts. Careful investigation and the testimony of two or three witnesses is required. And the seriousness of what they say is brought home to the witnesses by their being required to lead the stoning, a form of execution that was used to prevent sharing in the uncleanness of the one who had become like the pagan Canaanites whom Israel was to devote to destruction. But if the charge was proved, then the Israelites were to act and not tolerate this rebellion. They were to be guided by righteousness 
a commitment to doing all that God had said and only righteousness and purge the evil from their midst. And the second example is equally serious. Some cases of varying kinds, verse 8, would be too difficult for the local local judges. Was that homicide a murder or a manslaughter? Oh, when did that negligence become culpable? There are all kinds of examples of cases that might become too hard. So Moses establishes not an appeal court, but a court of reference at the tabernacle, at the place the Lord had chosen. Here the local elders from the village would put the case before the priests and the judge, verse 9, a religious and civil tribunal of those charged with teaching, interpreting and applying the law of God, people with experience. But the emphasis falls on the need to comply with the decisions, to act according to the decision the court has made. Verses 10 and 11. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. Four times they're told in varying ways to do according to what they declare to you without deviating from it in any way. And verse 11 is literally according to the Torah, the instruction they teach. But remember, this speech of Moses is Torah. According to the Torah they teach and the judgment they speak, you will do. This decision made by the priest the Lord has appointed and the judge at the Lord's sanctuary is an application of the Torah, this instruction Moses is giving, which is to be fundamental, the fundamental standard and rule of Israel's life. And that's why, verse 12, the man who does not obey the decision is to be put to death. He acts presumptuously. Presumption is deliberate defiance of the Lord. In this case, by showing contempt for the judgment of the Lord's priest in accordance with the Lord's law, by not doing it. Presumption is thinking you know better than the Lord, that you can substitute your judgment for what the Lord has made clear is his judgment. And again, that is the rejection of righteousness, of the very foundation of righteousness. For it's the claim that you, the presumptuous person, should rule in Israel and that Israel's life should not be guided by the word, the law of the Lord, but by your word and will. And that's rebellion, treason, and so it's met with death. In Israel, it's the judgment of the Lord given in his word that is to be final. But Deuteronomy, as you heard, is often looking ahead beyond the immediate future of Israel's occupation of the land. Now Moses anticipates a day when the Israelites, verse 14, will want to change the way their civic life is arranged, the way they govern themselves. He anticipates a day when they will ask for a king. On that day, How will the Lord's rule through his word, his Torah, be maintained amongst his people? How will their distinctive identity as the Lord's people, generation after generation, be maintained when they have a human king? Now, having 
a king was the commonest form of government of the people surrounding Israel. So Moses doesn't bother to describe the role of a king. He just makes clear what kind of king Israel is to have and how he's to be different from the surrounding kings. This king, as we'll see, is to be the model Israelite the embodiment of the one who follows righteousness and righteousness alone by his submission to the Torah, the instruction of the Lord. In verse 15, we meet the requirements for the selection of a king. Verses 16 and 17, what the king must not do, and verses 18 to 20, what the king must do. While the people request the king, the king must be the Lord's choice. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And that means that the king depends on the Lord for his position and authority. Royal authority is the Lord's gift, the Lord's, not the people's gift. And the king's to be an Israelite, one who knows himself to be the brother of his subjects and who has his identity as one in covenant relationship with the Lord, committed to the Lord as his God. And then we're told Uh, verses 16 and 17, that he's not to accumulate horses, wives or wealth. All three marked out the kings of the surrounding nations. Horses and chariots were the core of a powerful military force in those days. So this king must not lust for military power, must not be a warmonger who relies on his own might. And wives, royal wives, were a way of securing alliances with the surrounding nations by marrying their princesses. And they would often bring their gods with them as as part of the arrangement. So royal wives, a way of securing alliances as well as a way of securing your dynasty by having many sons. Oh, and this king is not to be driven by greed and accumulate great wealth as a way of showing his status and buying influence. These three prohibitions say that the king's trust for security and success must not be in himself, in his own power, in his own political savvy, in his own wealth. Rather, his trust was to be in the Lord, seen in living under the law, and he's not to be a law to himself like the despots around him. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So he's to copy out the law for himself. And it must be an accurate copy without addition or deletion confirmed by those entrusted with keeping the law, the the Levites. And he must read the law all his life. It's not something he graduates from as he gets more experience and feels more secure. And he is to do the law, to keep it all. In fact, verse 19, he is to learn the fear of the Lord his God by reading and doing the law. That is, he is to develop that trusting, respectful awe that God requires of all his people by putting the Lord's word into practice and finding the Lord faithful as his faith is tested in obedience. 
And that trust would save him from pride and keep him faithfully obeying the law in its fullness all his days. And so it would ensure his reign and his dynasty. It would give him the security that others sought in themselves, their military prowess, their alliances, their wealth. The one necessary characteristic of one who would be king in Israel was faith, humble trust, seen in faithful obedience to the word of the Lord, doing the Lord's will, not his own. That is, his was to be the faith, was to be faith in the Lord alone that placed all his security where he's surrounded by nations hostile to the true God, that places all his security, his kingdom, his life in the Lord's hands. The king was to live under the Lord's reign and so he would promote the Lord's reign in Israel. This kind of king would maintain the Lord's rule through his word, his Torah amongst his people. He would be the means of the Lord's people retaining their distinctive identity as the Lord's people and enjoying the Lord's blessing in the Lord's land generation after generation. And in time, 1 Samuel 8, Israel did ask for a king, but not this kind of king. Rather, they wanted a king like the kings of the other nations. And to cut a 1,400-year tale, tale of grief short, none of the earthly kings of Israel was this kind of king. Not even David pursued righteousness and righteousness alone. He sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, whom he had killed. And Solomon, it's kind of ironic that we actually sung about Solomon and his request for wisdom. Think of Solomon. Well, actually, one king's reports that Solomon did exactly what Deuteronomy forbade. He had 1,400 chariots, 40,000 horses, 700 wives and 300 concubines. The number is actually mind-boggling. You think, where did he get the time? Right? Uh, and anyhow, he amassed gold and silver that could not be counted. And his wives did turn his heart away from the Lord. He wasn't wholly true to the Lord. None of the kings of Israel and Judah that followed him fulfilled completely the ideal of Deuteronomy and most fell very short and the people followed their kings. They didn't live by righteousness and only righteousness. They went and worshipped other gods, breaking the covenant, rebelling against the Lord. They did what pleased themselves, put their trust in their own judgment and no longer lived by the Lord's instruction, his Torah. And the Lord's a righteous God. And they came under the judgment that the Lord said would happen if they broke the covenant. They lost land and king and were almost completely lost as a people. But the Lord had made a promise to Abraham that in his descendants all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And the Lord, the righteous God, kept those promises by sending his righteous king Jesus. The apostles declared Jesus to be the righteous one, the righteous king. You denied the holy and righteous one. And in Jesus' ministry and death, Jesus showed himself to be the humble, faithful king the Lord said should be king in Israel. The king who entrusted his reign, <coughs> his reign, his life itself to the Lord 
by believing and doing his will, revealed in the law and the prophets. That's what guided Jesus' life. It is written, the king who gave himself to do the Lord's will, even if it meant death. Not my will, but yours, he said in the garden. Where all other Israelites failed, Jesus, the true Israelite, followed righteousness and righteousness alone. And that's bad news and good news for us. You see, as the righteous one, he brings the righteous judgment of God's word, the judgment the Lord's people were meant to enact on all idolaters and all those who want to substitute their judgments for the Lord's, who act presumptuously by despising the word of God. And as the Lord of all, he will bring that judgment, that righteous judgment, to all people everywhere. And that's bad news for us, isn't it? Because all of us have rebelled against the Creator God, doing what pleases us, not Him, with the life and gifts He has given us. That judgment would be the end of us. If the living God's will, the will the righteous one gave Himself to, had not been to save sinners, to rescue justly condemned rebels. But the good news is that this was God's will, the will Jesus gave himself to in the garden. It was God's will that the righteous king would save an unrighteous people. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus saves by his obedient death, the righteous for the unrighteous, suffering in our place. Those who repent, who say they are wrong to worship other gods, wrong to defy the commands of God and believe the gospel, confess the crucified Jesus to be the risen Lord, the eternal King with all authority, are forgiven, washed clean of the offence of our rebellion, included in God's righteous people by being included in God's new covenant. And that's what we'll celebrate this morning in the Lord's Supper. But if you do not yet trust the Lord Jesus, this is what you need to hear this morning, that there is bad news and good news. Bad news, that you deserve judgment, deserve death, for giving your heart to things that are not the creator God, for showing contempt for God by thinking you know better than him what is right and wrong. That judgment Jesus, the righteous one's resurrection, says is certain. But the good news is you can find forgiveness by repentance and faith in Jesus. And in bringing you here to hear this, this Old Testament, it may be obscure to you, but in bringing you to hear, God is calling you to repent and believe. And if you want to know what that means, come and talk. But if, as I know most of you have, embraced the good news, if you're a believer, that forgiveness is not a reason to neglect righteousness. It's a reason to give ourselves to righteousness. We are joined to Jesus by faith. Our life is in him, the righteous king, included in the covenant by him. We should, like him, follow righteousness and righteousness alone. That starts with believing the gospel and continues by believing the gospel. But the faith that unites us to Christ desires to conform our lives 
to the relationship with the living God he has entered into with us to conform our lives to the new covenant that Jesus brings where God's law is now written on our hearts. Deuteronomy 16 and 17 tells us that every follower of Jesus should accept responsibility now for making sure that the Lord Jesus rules through his word, his gospel word preached by the apostles, is maintained amongst his people, should accept responsibility for maintaining our identity as the people of the Lord Jesus in relationship with him through believing his word. Now, what might accepting that responsibility look like for us? Well, again, Deuteronomy tells us. It means that in our life together, we never mix the worship of God revealed in Jesus with the worship of other gods, whether that's money or selfish ambition or ancestral spirits. Oh, we must make sure that there's no one amongst us who is worshipping other gods, sitting in our midst, but secretly worshipping money or power or pleasure or the ultimate authority of human reason, defining their identity by some relationship other than the one believers have with Jesus as Lord. And if we see that, we must not be lazy in addressing it. We mustn't show favouritism and ignore some. We have to call them to repent, to return to living with Jesus as Lord, confessing the true God as Father, Son and Spirit and being directed by his word. And if they won't listen, well, they have no place amongst us. And we have to make sure that amongst us the teaching of the gospel, the teaching of God's word, is final in all difficult matters. That there's no setting aside the rule of God's word in our life to be guided instead by our own word, our own judgment, our own feeling of what is better. That there's no presumption that despises God and his instruction. So believers are not at liberty to say, for example, that sexual immorality, whether that's sex outside marriage or sex between members of the same sex, is acceptable in God's people because we now know better. Oh, we're not at liberty to say that wives shouldn't respect their husbands and husbands shouldn't love their wives. We're not at liberty to say greed or pride or racism is acceptable amongst God's people, that our understanding of what is right should be able to set aside what God says is right because that is presumption. God's word, fulfilled in Christ, understood and applied, must give the final verdict amongst us and its authority amongst us recognised by doing what it says. Oh, and as those who conform their life and thinking to the new covenant, we have to have our thinking about leadership whom we choose and how it is to be exercised, shaped by our righteous king. Now, that's a much bigger story. But surely before personal charisma or spectacular giftedness or powerful connections or academic achievement, we have to look for humble faithfulness. The humble faithfulness that knows and does God's word. We have to look for people whose character is shaped by obedience to the word, word and have been taught by Jesus to serve in love. Leaders who won't accumulate for themselves wealth or power or status, <coughs> who don't rely on their own gifts and abilities and insight, but who rely wholly on the Lord for their ministry, making the word their constant study and living and speaking according to that gospel word. 
But we can't fulfil our responsibility for our collective life unless each one of us has already decided in our own heart to follow righteousness and righteousness alone in all our decisions and attitudes. Our Lord said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for a life wholly given to living in conformity with our relationship with the living holy God in Christ, wholly given to faith and love and truth. Now each of us should pray that we are gripped by that hunger for righteousness so that we don't try to live serving two masters, mixing loyalty to Jesus with loyalty to another God like money or pleasure or our ambition. And we should pray that we are gripped by that hunger for righteousness so that we root out the idols from our own hearts, whether that's our pride or our protectiveness of self or our thought that money will solve all our problems or our trust in our own reason over the word. Jesus alone is the one we are to trust and to be directed by and worship. And we should pray that we are gripped by that hunger for righteousness so we will flee presumption, the presumption of knowing what God forbids and thinking we will be safe in doing it, not as a slip-up, but habitually, whether that presumption seen in nursing resentment or lying or living selfishly or sexual immorality, whatever it is. And that might be you sitting here this morning, knowing what God says, but habitually doing the opposite because you think you know better. See that sin for what it is, contempt of your saving Lord, the almighty creator and judge. It is hate of your loving saviour and repent from it. Pray that you will know no rest, because that's what hunger gives you, no rest. Pray that you will know no rest until you put that sin to death. Being the Lord's people in covenant relationship with him is our hope, it's our comfort and our security. It's what guarantees that we will rise with him to live in the new heaven and earth. So accept, embrace wholeheartedly the responsibility to be his righteous people, pursue righteousness and righteousness alone. And in so doing, live the life that will show to the world how good it is to be the people of the righteous king. Let's pray. Our gracious God, again we pray that you would write this word on our hearts. We pray that you would convict us where we are not following righteousness and righteousness alone. The righteousness we learn from Jesus, from his word and example. Help us to trust him and in trusting him to live for him. And gracious Father, uh, we pray that you would maintain that hunger for righteousness in our lives all our days so that together we would be the people of the Lord Jesus where his word rules and he is honoured as our righteous king. We ask this in his name. Amen.